Casting with Carrie Jones. Hi everyone and welcome to my Christmas podcast. This week's episode comprises of snippets from all the episodes from the past 12 months, 33 in total, some recorded at my studio or by telephone or on location. And after investing in some outdoor equipment, some have been recorded while fishing on the waterside. As with my photography, I try to achieve the best I can while using high-end mics and editing software to get the best quality production. Each episode takes up to two days to make. So to help to continue with making these podcasts, I have set up a Patreon channel. And for those who have already joined, a big thank you for your support. And for those who haven't, and have enjoyed the podcast over the last 17 months, please consider becoming a Patreon, where you'll get a podcast every week, exclusive episodes, and bonus content and behind-the-scenes photography. And also available to Patreons, on Christmas Eve is a podcast episode with my good friend, Colin Follan, and his previous episode is such a favourite of many, especially his story of the King of Belgium. So I have already exclusive episodes all throughout December from my chat with Emmy Lewis, who's a retired river bailiff. Great stories there, really well worth a listen my full season summary what I think is one of the best wild trout lakes in Wales Talabont and also anyone wanted to fish in Clawedog I have an exclusive episode with Russell Lowen where I share a boat with him and he takes me onto the cages and gives all hints and tips and his top six flies and invaluable information for anybody wanting to fish Clawedog and as we were on the cages we could see some huge specimens lurking beneath so things are looking good there for next year so onto this podcast Sit back and enjoy a glass of malt, a pint of stout, or a mulled wine, and enjoy my summary of 2021. And I wish you all a Merry Christmas. Episode 27, Dean Kibble from New Zealand. You don't choose the pyramid, the pyramid chooses you. Because you cast at a lot of them and uh, ignore everything. They're very hard to hook on the flight. And, uh, Great to photograph, lovely looking fish. Yeah, I, we went there with Solid Adventures to Cayo Coco, and um, I got the, I got, got a grand slam there, and it was the first one they'd had in that area for about eight years. I came off and had all the guys slapping me on the back and buying me drinks, and <laughs> um, when, whenever I go there now, they all remember me, and they come up and make a fuss of me. So what is the grand slam? Yeah. That's a, a permit, a bonefish, and a tartan the same day. The three of them. Oh, right. The three of them the same day, yeah. Well, being so, as Welsh, we're used to having grand slams, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> 28, Mark Regan on Loch Corrib. Oh, they were the, the early spring fishermen. My dad used to tell me about those in the Corrib. And they went out in the one-man punts, and they were commercial fishing. They were, the fish were sent from Uderard by, uh, by bus or train. There was a train that time. And they were in Billingsgate two days later and they, they kept, you know, those fishermen, that was their job. And then later in the year in May and everything, they took out the rich gentry, yeah. killing them. But when they did the spring fishing, 
dad was saying they sometimes slept underneath the punts. So you can imagine in February how, you know, I mean, we've got all our modern gorgeous clothing and everything now. They probably had, you know, oiled cloth to keep them thing they were in. Yeah. Growing these punts with three hazel rods. So they were extraordinarily skillful keeping the three rods going. They took the line in by hand. They had a net to net the fish. And they sometimes slept underneath that punt under on a, in a bag of, wow. with a bag of straw to keep them warm. So they were pretty phenomenal. And they knew the lake really, really well. You know, they had to know it. And uh, if they caught a perch or something like that, they would eat it and fight, but they never ate the trout because they were too valuable. Yeah. So as I said, and I believe that the trout from Ballandiff Bay documented that in Billingsgate, you got a bigger price for them because like what you were saying earlier, they were the really short, deep, fat fish and they were really pink-fleshed. Yeah. And if they could get them from there, sometimes they actually rode down. Now that's a good row from, you know, Boudreard to Anna Down. They must have had arms like cow's legs. Oh, they must have been unbelievable men, really, you know. Just even, just to manage the boat that day, you know. I suppose they just did it steadily and consistently. And they're small boats, you know. And yeah. If there's any kind of a big wave at all, you, it's like being in the kayak. You really need to know what you're doing. And there's a few people still use them today and just do a little bit of it, just to keep the tradition alive. 29, John Horsey. Well, one of my clients from Italy, Enrico Pini, caught a 40-pound, 8-ounce pike on the fly fishing with me. Wow. And I weighed it. Wow. And it was a huge fish. We'd actually seen it come for a fly before. And um, we decided to leave the area, or I decided to. And he said, no, no, no. He couldn't speak a lot of English, but no, no, no. Big fish, big fish. I said, I know. Let's rest it. It'll still be there. We'll just go up to the end of the bay, and then we'll change flies, go back, and have another go for it. So we spent 20 minutes somewhere else came back into the part of Zillis that we were fishing before, changed flies, first cast down in the same area, two pike came after the fly, and both were huge, but they didn't take it. So he cast out again, started retrieving the fly, brought it back up. As it was coming up, you could see this fish come up. It took it and went down. And quite a long time later, we got it into the boat, 40 pounds, 8 ounces. Wow. What a fish that was. And at the time, I just wanted it to be over 30. And when it, when they, because there were three of us in the boat, the other guy, one of the guys could speak good English. And I was holding the scales. He said, no, no, 40, 40. I said, no, you hold it. So I looked <laughs> at it and it never crossed my mind it was over 40. 30. John Buckley from Kalani. And I think yeah. it was something I learned early on, that when you're fishing for these small trouts, they're lightning quick and they, you know, you get a quick, yes. and you feel the tug, and it's gone. So after a while, you're getting fine-tuned, and you're, like, in the zone, and you're waiting for any sort of disturbance, the line, or tweak, or pull, and you strike, and you're getting quite confident, and, you know, th- these fish are coming now, and yeah. you're doing all right. But every now and again, then you're lightning quick. The line goes, and you strike, and as you strike then, you'll see, like, a, a five- or six-pound grills just swim away, like... And you've just, yeah. you haven't given me enough time, like, you know. And that's why at the end of my yeah, podcast, I, I got a bit of a line that said, don't strike too soon. And that's the reason. Yeah, but you, you're 100% right. <clears throat> and I can completely relate to what you're saying. Is, uh, because the, 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 we, we meet plenty of small fish, and they're, they're lightning quick. You're, you're, like you said, you're in the zone. You're, you're ready every cast. You're ready for the fish. The one thing you need when you're fishing for salmon is patience. You know, you've got to leave them turned down with that fly. You know, it's salmon will come up and just snap it like a trout will, but uh, the majority of the time, 
give us well under it, sip it down. And the hardest thing to do is strike. I'm sorry, the hardest thing not to do is strike. Yeah. You know, every, every every instinct you have is, lift, is is telling you to lift the rod. You know, now there's areas on that lake and, and other lakes in Killarney where we will specifically target salmon with the flies because we've, we, we, we've been doing that over the years, you know, in, in, separate, in, in different areas, we know we need to slow down. You know, you, 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 we've hit that certain point to target the salmon. So if a trout comes up, you know, you kind of switched off, right? You, you, you live to, to fight another day with no interest in you, so you don't really care. So, you know, you, you actually tuned in to, 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 to hitting, um, hooking that salmon. You know, so you, you do slow down. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, again, it's like every person I've ever fished out of a boat that made a salmon. Nine times out of ten, they'll always lose the first one. 31, Alan Parfit. We started going up every summer. It's a long old drive, mate. It's 13 yeah. hours drive. You have to you have to take a ferry across to the mainland of Orkney. You have to drive across Orkney and then take another ferry then to cross on the island of Hoy. The farm is right above a beach called the Bay of Creekland. It's a beach about the size of Barry Island Beach, I expect. I was up there for a month one year and I never saw a single person on the beach in a month. Wow. And when the tide goes out, the tide is to... It's, a, it's like a, it's an inlet, a scarp of flow it is. You had Graham's Day Island, 200 yards across from where we stayed. And the tide used to race through like a huge river. And uh, the trout, the sea trout would come in and cruise the edge of it. And I used to fly fish for them there. Crystal clear water. And uh, out in the middle, there were some skerries. And years ago, there probably were a couple of hundred grey seals on there at low water. Yeah. They'd nesting on there, and you'd lay in bed at night because you know the farm was right on the beach, and you could hear the seals mewing at night all through the night. You know, it's like cats. And uh, but you know the old adage: the seal comes along, you know, don't bother fish. Yeah. <laughs> I took John Galvin, my, my chap I mentioned. I was up after we, when we was after we were born, and we was fly fishing for the sea trout. And these, these skerries, a couple hundred yards offshore, and the seals, being curious, thing, they come in to look at you. Right. And John said to me, he said, Parf, he said, everyone calls me Parf, by the way. He yeah. said, Parf, he said, how many seals can you count there in front of us, you know, watching us? 38, I said. He said, oh, I can count 40. <laughs> and we were fishing, and they were no more than 25, 30 yards from us, and we were catching sea trucks. The sea trout weren't bothered. The sea trout were not bothered at all. 32, Jimmy Terrell. Oh. It's come to that time, I'm going to ask you a question, which yeah. I ask everyone. And you probably know what the question is going to be. Where would you want to be to make your last cast? On the River Gowell. It's just, it's paradise. And if you're ever over here, I'll take it and you'll see why it's just, it's a small river and it's if you were out there on a summer's evening you were in a different world because there's virtually nothing only a farmhouse here or there every few miles and it's paradise just you the river and hopefully a hatch of flies on it and there's nothing better I've had some of my nicest nicest evenings on it you could actually sit there for hours on a summer's evening 
just looking at this rising. There's, there's nothing nicer, actually. Just somewhere. There's, there's actually, I'll, I'll, if you're ever over, I'll take and show you. There's, there's even a, uh, there's a weir in a certain part of it. There's no houses near this. There's a weir and there's a graveyard. And I, I often said to myself, it's a good luck to be buried there. The graveyard is probably 200 yards off the river in the middle of nowhere. A house at the graveyard. It's just a paradise, honestly. Paradise. And I love it. It's probably the nicest place to, that I've ever had to fish in my life. Like, the fishing is so good in it, and nobody fishes it. You kind of have it all to yourself. But you wouldn't see a footprint. To me, that's that's nice. And over the years, I've learned different laneways to go down through, through meeting farmers who don't even fish. And if you catch it, if the fishing is good, take a fish home and drop it off on the doorstep on the way home and you're always welcome back. Little laneways where there's, you know, you've no access, only only those laneways. And you learn that they're there over the years, nobody else would know that. And sometimes you can drive in and park right on the edge of the river. It's just laneways, the farmer, access access lanes for fields, farmers. That's how I learned all that river. You'd nearly have it to yourself. But again, if the fishing is good, catch, keep a fish drop it on his doorstep on the way home and you'll always be welcome back you'd be welcome if you didn't drop it anyway but you know that to me is it's home from home nothing nicer awesome well hopefully we will meet up this year please god everything will will be calmer down then towards the summer and if you're over just give me a call we'll look after you I will do I thoroughly enjoyed our chat and hope to see you this year I loved it thanks very much yeah 33, Cliff Harvey. I seen the trout come out from under the stone, grab my worm and take it under the stone. Wow. So I give, so I give him a few seconds and I whacked him and I had him out. And I ran all the way home. That's got to be about <laughs> a mile and a half. I ran all the way home with a bloody fish still on the hook Did until you? I got into the house to show my father. <laughs> <laughs> Boat, the regional boat championships it was and it was in Clandeg and I was drawn with you and I thought oh I got this made yeah. now and we actually did we won it <laughs> not only did we win it I think we finished by about 12 o'clock and then <laughs> yeah and that was it that was six fish and then you stopped it's not like right. now you know you, you point uh, no. to this but uh, I said another right. tankard no there we are yeah yeah I won the competition there off the bank I didn't want to fish the boat, and it was a competition. I can't recall who the organizers were, but Gareth Edwards was there, and uh, it ended up I won it. So Did you? he presented me with a book, which I got in, the, in my library up there now. On rugby? Trout Fly Fishing by J.R. Hartley. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you say it Can you remember book. that? Yeah. J.R. Hartley. And he wa- it wasn't about bloody fishing at all. J.R. Hartley was a, a bloody advert on the television, it was. That's right. <laughs> I, I won that. He gave me that on a day, and he and he wrote in it then to Cliff from Gareth, because I fished with Gareth Edwards three or four times. Yeah. And uh, the prize was a, a weekend away in an, a, a country estate up in Midlands. And my missus played out because I took Paul. Paul, Paul was young. 34, my early season bank tactics. It's not until later on in the year you get the colours, you get the greens and the 
um, the, the claret buzzers and some of the English waters then they'll, they'll have orange and reds but very rare do you get those in Wales it's normally the deeper colours the clarets and the blacks and the and the darker olives size wise like I said I will use tens even though some of these buzzers which you see on the Welsh waters at least they're very small they're more or less equivalent to I would say a 16 or a 14 even 12 size at best you rarely get big buzzers but I think well fishing 12s and 10s, that's all I would fish. I wouldn't go smaller than 12s or 10s. Even though the flies themselves coming off are smaller, I think it's why match something the same size. If you go a little bit bigger, the temptation for the fish is to take your fly because it's bigger. Some logic in that. It's worked for me, so and I'll stick to it. And the larger the hook, the deeper the fly will fish as well. A great method which I thoroughly enjoy using begin the season as well is when you're fishing these epoxies, a team of buzzers, is I, I love just casting out when you've got a win either left to right or right to left, and then just cast a long line out, and just hold on to it. Even if there's a wind or there's a nice breeze, and just, just keep in touch with them. Slow, slow figure of eight, and you get the arc coming in the line. And what I find with early season buzzer fishing... It's not like the summer where you've got to be quick and you're missing them. More often than not, this time of year, the fish are hungry. As soon as you slow figure of eight in that line round, the line just rips at your hand. The, the takes are quite savage and they're on. And more often than not, they stick. 35. Mark Roberts, River Entomology. Do you, do you find there's a difference between, say, an iron blue and a marsh brown? The type of rise, or is it just a visual? You, you just got to see the insect. No, absolutely. Uh, um, and that, this is one of the things when you get mass hatches, you really, if you're not catching with what you think is fishing, you've got to observe and perhaps change your tactics. Um, rise forms will denote quite often the type of fly that the fish are feeding on. Uh, it will also denote the rise form because with a larger fly like a March Brown, it's quite often a, a big splashy gloop, and you can hear it, you know. You'll hear it before you see it. Uh, a slashing rise is quite often to uh, a, la a, a large fly like a March Brown or a, a large brook dun or um, a sedge pattern often gets slashed at, right? Because it excites the fish, they, 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 and it's a big mouthful. Whereas your iron blue duns are quite often just sipped, just tiny little kiss of the water almost. Because mm. um, one thing to to remember here is the size of the rise does not dictate the size of the fish. Do you get them on the river? Like again, I'm bringing up the carry, but the mayfly there. Obviously, you get me. It could be like the start of May, the end of May, but you, you do get a good hatch for like two weeks or so. And then it goes quiet then, right? Yeah. July, you'll get another hatch yeah. of Mayfly, but they're a lot smaller. Yeah, yeah, that that often happens. Uh, and I think that's nature's way of securing survival. Um, you, you'll find that that's where you get a lot of these hatches spread over a period of time. Because the eggs, that, and it's not the adults that are 
It's for the survival of the adults. It's for the survival of the eggs. Well, put your eggs in one basket. Exactly. 36, Paul Proctor. Yeah. <laughs> what is it you're drinking? I'm drinking a Shipyard Pale Ale, American Pale Ale. It's quite a nice beer, is that? You get it on draft in my local, but this obviously I'm not. I'd, I'd like to say I'm signing my local having a pint, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew after talking on Monday, you said you were going to get um, some drink and get comfortable for the chat. So I thought, I don't know if you can hear that. I've got exactly the same thing. Aye, I just heard it, yeah. yeah. I'm pouring now a can of draft Guinness. It's not quite the same from a pub, but it's the closest thing we can get at the moment. No, overseas, yeah, trophy trout, £10 plus. Now, I've been tra- chasing a double down in New Zealand, you know, these my speeders um, for lots of years, and it's never just clicked. I'm, I've come so blinking close, of, you know, is nine pounds, six ounce, nine pound, eight ounce, nine pound, twelve ounce, blah blah blah. Um, but one leading up to getting back on track up in Iceland, the two biggest fish. I had a fish of sixty. I can't remember. I mean, and, and this is why I, I keep diaries because I, I could go to the diary. It was sixteen pound and so many ounces, an absolute monstrous thing. And the biggest on dry fly. And these are from uh, uh, Thingliver, Lake Thingliver, or Thingliverton. On the lake? And, um, yeah. Um, oh, Elva, yes. yeah, yeah, I know it, yeah. Yeah. My biggest on dry was £14.15. And I took a bazillion photographs of that, and it is one fish. 37, Sue Shaw. I arrived. I wanted to go out that night. And, of course, nobody else did because they'd all had quite a late night. They'd enjoyed themselves. So I just went out on my own. I thought, well, I'm just going to have a little wander out. And I bumped into Marion Davis, you know, oh, from yeah. Wales. Yeah, yeah I, was, I, I bumped into her and we chatted about where she was heading. She was going up to the pub. I said, well, I'll just walk up to the pub with you. And so we got to the entrance and... Uh, she says, well, come in and join us. I says, I can't join you. She says, come on in. No, I can't. And it was, this is two in and fro. And I said, look, it's your team in there. I said, you need to go and sit with them. So anyway, I decided I would go in and I went and sat at the bar. And she joined the rest of the team. And then the team manager came across and said, come and join us. I said, I can't. I said, it's your, <laughs> it's your Welsh team meeting or whatever. I said, you might be talking tactics. I said, I yeah. can't come and infiltrate. He convinced me to go and sit with them, so I did. Well, we had such a giggle, and they were playing silly games. It wasn't a team talk. It was just something to relax and just have a have a night off. And we, I had stickers on my forehead. Um, I'm not even sure what games we played, but they were all a bit yeah. silly, and you had to you had to have forfeits. Um, they were like shots, and I'm thinking, are they mm. trying to sabotage me? That's it. Or, <laughs> oh, what? It was a ploy. It was, but we had we had such a laugh. It was really nice, and and then shortly afterwards, um, I was given a um, a daffodil uh, made out of felt, which was gorgeous, <laughs> and I was made an honorary member of the Welsh team. <laughs> <laughs> and I've still got that daffodil today. It's it's lovely. It's in my little cabinet. Thirty-eight, John Ferguson. Something you mentioned about mm-hmm. when I said, "What what vice have you got?" Tell me about your vice. 
Well, the one that I'm using the new was actually my dad's. So as it's a Dynakine professional, it's got a, a big, big heavy duty a vice clamp, things like that, and the gallows and all that. But I don't use the gallows to bonus way because I, I would say that's mainly for paralooping and dry flies and things like that, or if you're spinning big, big dubbing loops and that. But I just kind of mainly use the, again, the standard professional, but uh, it was my, my dad's, so it means a lot to me, isn't it? Yeah. So it does. It's sentimental. I mean, it, to be honest with you, I've tied a few flies on it when he owned it, you know, when he was showing me these things and that. But to get it after he's tied, because it's like, the vice itself has got to be over 28 years old, and it's yeah. still tying like, like a boss to this day. I mean, I'm rattling it orders left, right, and centre, and yeah. that's the vice that I use. See the, the first vice that I started up on? It was a wee, a wee plastic black diner vice. It was a wee cheapo one. It was about 50, 60 pounds, something like that. And I, I learned in that vice, tied on it for years. Yeah, that was, so a few, that, that was a few quid, mate, then. I suppose 50, 60 quid. Aye, that's, that's true. That was all I could afford back then. Yeah. Um, until I was lucky enough to get my dad's one. And well, hopefully I've got it for a few years yet, Cherry, and it, it keeps up to the jobs that I keep putting in. Because I don't, I don't want to, you know, put it to the side or anything like that. Too sentimental for that. 39, Marco Orsi. Started fishing the, a, a, a pool that's called Kevin's Cry. Spin in with a black and gold flying sea, you know, and uh, the water was coloured, perfect conditions. Uh, I caught a six pound grills, quickly returned, you know. I thought, oh, that's a good start of the day. And a couple of casts later, I hooked a fish and I thought, oh, this this is substantial, you know, like it's like <laughs> it is irresistible force, you know. And I thought, yeah. fish took a huge run through the pool I was fishing up onto the next pool. Up river. Up river, up river. And he hit the lip of the pool, the pool above us, and I just caught the top of his back and I thought, oh gosh, Chunky, we need the net because we didn't have a net. So Chunky's called Chunky because he's Chunky. He's about... (laughs) Big lad, like. He's a big lad, you know, and the the hut was about 400 (laughs) yards away. (laughs) So he ran up and God bless him, he came back with a net, but this time the fish had come back and he was in the pool, I'd hooked him, you know. And he was rolling, and I could see the the hook was just on the outside of the mouth of the... Of the and he had a huge kipe, this fish. Yeah. It was an autumn fish, you know. wasn't... You've seen the pictures. It, if you look at it, people think it's a, a, a brown trout, you know. Yeah, but it, it's, it, it's an autumn-coloured fish, and, um, you know, about 20... Say half hour, I was playing this fish and strong current as well. And he just managed to come into a backwater and he could see the full length of the fish and chunky netted him for me. And I thought, you know, just like legs, which you know, because you've caught a big oh, fish yeah. on your own, haven't you? You know, you, you know all about this, and you just get this feeling, thinking, oh my gosh, this is something special, you know. So yeah. we had the scales and we weighed it, and we said, you know, let's weigh it again, you know. Let's this is a thirty pound, thirty five pound plus fish. What's classed as a portmanteau fish? I don't know if you've ever heard of that term. The old the old way fishermen used to class anything above thirty pound as a portmanteau, and anything below that was like ladies' handbags. You know. It was like... Episode forty: Fly fishing and fly tying editor Mark Bowler.
so he went up there and I said, get, I said to Glenn, if you get some shots of David there, you'll get the mountain in the background and David fishing. And as he was doing it, I noticed some little fish dimpling in this in this bay which where Glenn was. So I said to Glenn, I said, look, there's some, there's some little fish dimpling here. Glenn. I'll flip out. And if you set your camera up, I reckon I'll be able to cast towards the camera and hopefully I'll get one. And then there'll be a splash in front of the camera, and I'll be in the background with Yeah. So I said, <laughs> so I got flipped out, and he set his camera up on the tripod, and I said, I cast out towards him, and he said, "Are you ready?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Are you ready?" Yeah. I'll start retrieving. And I just made about two or three retrieves, and this all fighty. Gleam just rolled over the wet flights, you know. Wow. And I thought, what on earth that? And I lifted into it. And uh, I remember David said, he said, have you got one, Bowler? I said, yeah, yeah, I have. And he said, make it jump for the camera. And I said, David, I said, you haven't seen this fish. I said, it is so big, it won't get off the ground. Really? It, and it was, i tell you, it was, there's a fish farm on the, on their loch and it grew rainbows and sometimes they'd escape oh but this this one must have escaped a long time ago because we eventually got it in it was 19 pound one ounce you're kidding it was a massive rainbow absolutely massive rainbow and it was so funny i I thought this this will get off in a minute you know it's got to um but it didn't and i caught it on a on a size 12 in uh, Pearly and Victor, I called it. 41, Alan Rees, A Guide to Sea Trout. In a pool tail, which is maybe a foot and a half, two foot, you know, the fish don't need to move. But if I put a really noisy fly, say, for example, uh, a large muddler or something really big and bulky through it, these fish have got lateral lines. They know that in the pool, it may be that they interpret it as something that, is, uh, like a predator, you know, come in there, wah, and then they scatter. Whereas when I fish something like the American Express, it slips into the water quietly and it comes through and it doesn't really disturb them because it's... Slim, isn't it? Right. But as it's been past their nose, there's just a, I don't know whether it's an instinctive reaction... You know, like, we we are sat here now. If I threw something at you, your immediate reaction would be... Throw it back. Or, well, <laughs> yeah, 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 it could be. But you'd have to catch it first. Yeah, yeah. You know, but why would you catch it? Why wouldn't you just look at it and yeah, yeah. watch it fall to the floor? Yeah. So when, when your fly is going past these fish, all they see is a bit of movement, <laughs> and they go, grab. So it'll depend where I start in the pool, what flies I use, and what tactics. 42. Neil Darling. I've got very fond memories of, of fishing camping trips to Fermanagh uh, with Dad, using the old canvas tent that him and his his, his dad, granddad, would have used in, in their sort of fishing trips. Brilliant. Um, and I can, I can remember thinking as a kid it was more akin to a circus tent, really, than a, a sort of a tent <laughs> you'd take camping. It was a, a huge thing. Um, and, uh, you know, it is... It, 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 
seen seen better days. I did had a fair few trips to Scotland, I think, with with Granny and Granddad as well. So, um, yeah, they, that was all adventures in its own right. And um, you know, the Dad during a, a heavy heavy fall of rain one night decided that germaline, the sort of bacterial cream, was a great way of stopping the water coming in. And of course, as soon as he touched the tent and the tent side, it, it sort of flooded in after that. So. You know, there's, there's oh. memories like that through and, you know, trips to, we used to stay in a place called the Willow Pantry, bed and breakfast in, in Enniskillen. One of one of the lasting memories of that is the Ulster Fry breakfast that you used to get every morning. It was like, I don't know, you, it, an English breakfast on steroids, I think. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you were guaranteed at least sort of three types of bread, fried bread, soda bread and potato bread and all the usual sausage and egg and so that that set you up for the day's fishing. Um, yeah. There was no no lunch needed after that. Forty three. Sean Jones. Do you fish the Taft much? Not not often. I've done a couple of I've done an international with a Welsh team on the River Taff. That was good. That was that was a good experience, and I I learned a lot of the lo- more local boys. Although I practiced it and fished it in the past. Right, I learned a lot from that international. That was, was yeah, that? that was a real experience. That was. Well, was, was that that Merthyr way? Is it? Yeah, yeah, it was on the Merthyr stretch. It was one of the higher stretches. I think they kept it quiet over the years, but I think with social media, you now people are sharing pictures. That they realised that that stretch of water, the Taff, is a really good river, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and going back to seeing photos and again, as you say, social media of, of that river running black from the colliery water and so on. It's really come back. So tell me, how did you start fishing then? By nagging my father, basically. Because obviously he's a fisherman himself, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, da- dad's a fish, fly fisher as well. Um, so I just by nagging, um, started sitting in the boat, gilling or netting or whatever else I, you know, I was doing, not throwing his flies in or whatever else. <laughs> um, so how old would you have been then? About five. Was it? Yeah, slightly age about five. I was fly tying slightly, slightly before that, really, um, sitting with him on his lap, tying flies with him. And then I progressed into tying flies on my own. Um, Dad would take me up, again, up the pond. He'd sit and fish the pond together. I'd normally catch a fish or maybe two he'd cast out for me. I'd retrieve, same as most kids tend to start. But I had a massive interest in catching minnows. So I dropped the rod and that was me once I'd had one. No matter how many he was catching, I had no interest once I'd had the one. Right. So I'd go and catch the minnows then. <laughs> That's an art in itself, right, isn't it? Ah, yeah, I used to bring them home and they'd end up in a glass jar dead. <laughs> 44, David Hoppy. No, the, the first tape I caught, I was petrified, I'll be honest. I bet. <laughs> I got it, got it next next to the kayak and, yeah. I bet when you're playing those fish, you can hear... Absolutely. When that fin comes up when you brought them up, it's just like, whoa, this is, this is epic. Yeah. And it's not like you're fishing off a charter boat. You're in amongst the fish then, aren't you? The same level. Absolutely. Um, it, it's funny, twice a charter boat has come and dropped banker probably 20 metres from me, which is really quite dangerous. And I'm like, guys, is, is, <laughs> is the ocean not big enough? Um, wow. So, yeah, no mark where, where I fish. Clones. Um, so the biggest one was, again, you, you can't you can't weigh them on, on the kayak, so I really don't know the weight. Yeah. It, it, that photo circulated around social media and there's quite a few people suggested on 65 70 pound mark which is just an epic hope um and that was bang on middle of may and um, the weather was lovely it was 
it was overcast. There was there was just no waves. It was flat calm, mill pond. Put I put my um, my bait down, which um, was just a, a mackerel head, would you believe, on a, on a circle hook. And within about two minutes, it was just a little, just like jaws, click click click. Was it <laughs> on the on the reel? I'm not I'm not even exaggerating. It really was. It was click click click. The wrapped it off. Oh, hey, what's this? And then it just went, and just went unstoppable. <laughs> It was just the adrenaline. I would, yeah, I wouldn't like to check my blood pressure. You know, five I five bet. minutes, five five seconds into the, the fish taking taking the bait. Um, but yeah, incredible. And the fight was just next level for the fish. Huge fish. It got into the tidal run, and it, it actually pulled the anchor from its from its ground, and that the kayak was actually oh, with the tide. Um, so I was playing this fish, looking at the kayak looking at the droves, all these things going on in the middle of it. Um, I'm on my own, literally nobody around me for a good couple of miles. <laughs> 45, fish scientist, James Barry. One good fish uh, in the morning, we got up at, you know, silly o'clock, 4am I think, and yeah. we headed out. Um, it was actually a funny story behind it, the engine wouldn't start on the boat, so uh, oh. you obviously get, get down to your boat, you're ready to go, you're looking out on the lake, and uh, we go to pull the engine, no, no go out of the engine. So we, um, I was just annoyed over the top of the boat. And my friend that was with me, Jason, said, oh, look, I'll just row us over to this bay and um, we'll, we'll give it a go. And at this stage, I was sitting up top. I was just annoyed. The engine not working. Yeah. <laughs> um, ready to go back to the B&B and just say, that's it, enough of this. But uh, Jason, thankfully, anyway, rowed us over to the little bay. And as we're approaching, we're probably 100 yards out. We could just see, well, I could see I was sitting up the top. You could see this fish just sitting behind an island. And I shout back to Jason, says, yeah, I think I think I see something here. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, we kind of rode up onto this island, really nice and stealthy, actually. Now that I look back at it, it probably, probably helped us a bit, but the engine didn't start. Yeah. And um, it's just sipping away, sipping away. And uh, I just set up the fly, uh, waited for the fish to come up. Uh, textbook stuff, you know, just dropped the fly beside where he came up. And sure enough, he just came up and had it. And uh, yeah, then all hell broke loose. It was just... Uh, Almighty battle, and he was just oh, such a such a pretty fish, um, oh. and yeah, definitely definitely one I won't forget in a while. Just uh, great, great buzz. Just uh, food for the fly fishing soul up there in Mayfly time. It's great, great fun. Yeah, well, it must have been yeah. um, a blessing, really, that the engine didn't work. That's it, you know. Uh, everything, you know, all Looking these things for happen for a reason, as they say. Yeah. Did you get yeah, it to work so after? We were, yeah, I, I kind of I was messaging. So I, Jason saying that all I need is a bit of sunshine on the engine there, it will heat it up a bit. Uh, and uh, sure enough, when the sun came up and hit it, it was, uh, it was fine. One turn of the engine and it started and we, we headed off then, but we actually didn't catch that for the rest of the morning. 46, Paul Slaney. You were saying as well, you had, um, you were saying about dollies, like the hippos, the crocs. You had a close escape falling off a boat in... in... Yeah, you, yeah, you want to ask my wife now when we finish this. <laughs> yeah, we, we went... Uh, I went on a bone fishing trip and my wife came with me. One and only time she ever come fishing with me. And um, Anyway, we'd done some bone fishing and it was the end of the day and we were just messing about so we thought we'd, we'd try some sharks, you know, shark fishing. So we caught a barracuda, uh, cut it up to chum the sharks in, which we did. Um so now we're on a 19-foot skiff. There's me, my wife, and uh, the guide, uh, Colin. A uh, little guy. He's only about, you know, he was less than five foot tall. Stocky, powerful boy, but, you know, he wasn't the biggest lad you've ever met. So by now the, the, the boat is surrounded by sharks, so they're, like, 
white tips. Not huge, but big enough, you know. Um, and the, and the, the 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 way of fishing for them was to tenor hook on a heavy spinning rod with a chunk of barracuda on it, and literally take the bail arm off, choose which shark you wanted to catch, really, and throw, you know, the lump of bait at it like a cricket ball, and then put the bail arm on and hope he took it. Which oh, you they, literally throw one cast. Throw lit- literally, you couldn't because it's such a big lump of stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, just throw it at it. Anyway, so I didn't this. This this shark just turned and took it, <laughs> tightened onto it, and you know got got this shark on the end, and the rods bending. And I was stood on the casting deck of a bonefish skiff, and I took one step backwards to, to tighten into the fish, and there was no deck left. I just went straight in the water. Jeez, that would have been a great video clip. Oh Christ, it? man! I, and I can remember going, <laughs> I can remember going in, and bear in mind this boat, this little boat is literally surrounded by him, and it was shallow. I I felt my feet hit the you know the, the 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 bottom, so it was it was maybe a little bit deeper than me. I remember thinking this is it, and uh, I pushed back up. And as I pushed back up, my head came out the water. Colin was there, grabbed me by the shoulders, and literally manhandled me back on the boat. I swear, I swear, my fags were still dry. I was in and out so fast. <laughs> you know, and my wife was like, ah. you know, it was one of them time to go home sort of thing. Forty-seven, John Horsey on Chew Valley. Thinking about it, it's probably going to be a, a tough day, isn't it? It's bright, Sam. We've had about three or four days of sweltering heat. Yeah. And there's a hint of a breeze out there. It might even go in a flat calm. But we were talking to you earlier on. If it goes flat calm, it looks like you'll be rubbing your hands together because that's your favourite conditions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a competition fisherman, so I want to get an edge if I can. And the edge, quite often, is just a flat calm. And the reason I like sun and flat calm is you hardly ever get a flat calm day with cloud just doesn't happen mm. so you're going to get a bright sunny day you'll get some flat calms and quite often any lakes you ever fish anywhere in the southern or northern hemisphere if it's flat calm fish rise and if fish rise it means they're feeding now you've got to go and catch those fish which is normally on dry fly and also the fish that rise then are usually the fish that are residents they know what real food is and on the surface tension there is so much crud out there there's even little things like seed heads and things they'll pick up all of that they pick up all the empty buzzer shucks anything and the longer it's flat calm, the more confidence they have moving on the top and the more you can go out and target them on dries. It also means that a lot of the other methods don't work. So you know there's nobody going to be rushing around and finding a corner with a load of stockies that they can pull out on blobs and fabs because it ain't going to happen. So you've got to go out, take your time, try and build a good bag of fish. 48, my story of the Corrib record. And all of this time, y- your stomach is in knots with the excitement and the adrenaline because you really don't want this fish to come off. And I did, as I said previously, I hooked the fish the year, two years before, and it, it was a big, it was a record-sized fish that, and he came off. And he'd thought to myself, I don't want to go through that again. If this fish was going to come off, I was going to just step over the side. So anyway, I played this fish, and it looked like now, it was just over the hour, she was ready for the net. So... Again, if you can imagine now, you're in the boat, the fish is behind you, you're facing the wind, and you're drifting away from the fish, which is quite difficult. But And then you're down in a trough and up. So I had my big net out, had it over the side, and she came to the surface on her side, and she would just come into the net. And as I, she came into the net, the trough, the way the wind was, blew the boat up into the, like the crest of the wave and the fish slipped out 
went back in. You can imagine what I felt. The fish was half in the net and she just slid back in. And at this point I'm thinking, I was so lucky because I could see the bait and the hooks was inside the mouth. If it had been outside on the jaws, as she slid out at the edge of the net, a good chance the hooks would have been stuck in the net and then inevitably would happen. She would have come off. Another 10 minutes passed now. And if you can imagine, I know the size of the fish now. I've seen the size of the fish. And I still haven't got it in. So, like I said, about another 10 minutes passed now. And she came up to the surface again. And I slipped my net under this time, clean as a whistle, lifted the net. And that was it. But I didn't just lift her in straight away. I was so shattered, mentally as well as physically. Hour and a quarter, that fish would be on. So I held the net at the end of the gunnels for like two minutes. It seemed like a lifetime. Just looked over the side, see the fish there. Lifted then, one heave into the boat. And I could see then that this was a record. 49, Stuart Foxall. Oh, is it? Yeah. Targeting. Targeting steelhead, yeah. Which is the... Their version of sea trek, it's rainbow trout that have just come back to yeah. sea and they come back to spawn. They're and what sort of size are they you can expect to get there then? The best one I've had's probably been about 25 pounds, <laughs> absolute monster. And to be honest, it was one of the first ones I got as well, so I didn't really realize no, just what a fish of a lifetime it was. Uh, they class a 40 inch fish as about 20 pounds, and that's what what you want. I've had two of those. Uh, on the skein, a 40-inch fish, because they're so chunky and yeah. compared to other river steelhead, they're a few pounds heavier than that. So I, I, I can remember we, we'd... It was the year that that Icelandic volcano went off. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it stopped some trips. And I was about three days late getting over there to meet some friends and to be fair to the lodge, they said, don't worry about it, you can still do your week. So I got a guide to myself on the last three days who I got on with really well, Scott. And Scott was like, uh, do you mind if I fish? And I was like, I, I don't mind at all. So we was, we was just fishing down runs and whatever. And on the final day, he said, you've had enough steelhead. He said, do you fancy trying to get a Chinook, which is a... a Spring. Red salmon, like yeah, that. yeah. So I was like, yeah. So we we was fishing with bigger rods and heavier tips, and uh, I managed to get one. I, I got about twenty pounder in in the morning, and he was like, well, you've had the first one on the river. That's fantastic. I mean, he was made up. He was he'd, he'd done his job, and carried on fishing. And well, they all got that look like a big hump. No, not when they come in fresh. They they only start to get that hump when when they get uh, re- ready to spawn. Do they? Yeah. All oh, right. So uh, we fished through on the afternoon, and uh, somebody was in a run that we wanted to get to, and we was fishing somewhere we didn't want to be, and literally within half an hour they'd moved, and I said, "Go on, let's jump in there." But they haven't caught anything, and I, it didn't look as if they'd fished it that well. So we went over and literally he dropped me off and he said, while I'm in the boat, I'm just going up the corner to get some cigarettes. As soon as the boat went round the corner, my rod went down, got this 
bloody big steelhead on, landed it myself, and as soon as I released it, took a few photos, released it, the boat come round the corner, Aww. and he saw me get up, and he went, you've had one, haven't you? And I said, yeah, I've had a good one, and I showed him the pictures, and uh, we, I'd got it next to my rod, so we measured the rod after, and he was like, do you realise how many bloody years I'd fished before I got a steelhead that big? And you had to be on your own. Yeah. But I mean, it, you know, it, it'll always be in my mind, that's the main thing. Episode 50, my evening fishing drives at Llinvaur. The breeze is picking up lovely. I say breeze is picking up lovely because the last time I was here, in the evening, the wind drops. So often the case, which is nice. But because this place is surrounded by forestry, you tend to get a lot of um, uh, midges. And when it's calm, Jesus, it's a nightmare. I'll tell you a little story, actually. It was you one day, many, many years ago. And uh, we tried everything to stop the midges biting, you know. And there was a, a guy who was with me then, Mike Meelin, school teacher. He had an idea, because we'd been fishing a couple of nights previous and were eaten alive, of wearing a pair of women's tights on his head. He looked like a, a bank robber, which is all well and good. And he was saying, it's great. You know, the midges, fair play. He wouldn't bite through the, the tights. But oh, the thing was, he also had a fever, which wasn't a great combination. Because when he sneezed, you can imagine, it looked like his face exploded. Time to move. Then we go just down the bank and work my way down the shore. Nice time of year to fish this. There's a lot of heather on the banks and a lot of foxgloves. It's a lovely colour, a purple. Right, I'm covering new water here now. Oh, yep. Oh, oh, another great fish. That fish was about 10 yards out. I could see the bottom, see the flash. Fifty-one, Ilted Griffiths. The sea trout at sea will. If, they, if they're eating sprats, say, they will corral the sprats. The whole pile of these sea trout will corral the sprats and they will dive in there, stun them, very much like fry feeders, trout fry feeders, and then they'll come around and they'll eat them. And they'll they become sated. You know, they, they can't eat any more. Their stomachs are absolutely full. And then they will literally sit on the bottom, you know, again, with, don't say the bottom, but you know what I mean. Yeah. They, go, they go down the water and they do no activity. And it doesn't matter whether it's a 10-pound fish or a 3-pound fish, their stomach juices, their digestive juices, will work pretty well at the same rate. So when they're hungry or they need feeding again, they're going to all need feeding at the same time. Yep. And then, then they go through this exercise again of corralling the fish stunning them, 
eating as much as they can, which is why we have this phenomenal growth rate in some of these fish, right? You know, I mean, why do you get uh, 16, 18, 20 pound sea trout? You know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, they're big fish. They're not going to grow to that sort of size any more than the the big trout in the collie will grow to that size if they're going to eat flies or eat small things. They've got to eat something substantial Mm. to maintain or to gain that weight and maintain it. So is it a matter, therefore, that when these fish are sitting in pools, that suddenly that urge to do something comes to them all at the same time? Comes to them all. So if one takes... Another one's going to take, another yeah. one's going to take, right? Uh, uh, yeah. For a short period of time, a short period of activity. Yeah. And I've seen me catch three fish in half an hour on a night when I caught nothing else and I'd been out all night. It all happened maybe between one and half past one or two and half past two, whatever, right? Yeah. Suddenly, boom, boom, boom. And then nothing again. So, fishing pools is a, pa- a game of patience. 52, Tim Flewellyn. Anyway, we'd had a couple of fish, had a couple of browns, and we'd heard in a few stories, and they say about the big browns, kind of the savages, you know, Savages Creek, you I know, know it. tend to haunt around the, that areas, and uh, we'd gone up there and we'd had a few, not many, a couple of rainbows and all. So, um, anyway, I set up on an SSI line, and Three dull backs and a cutthroat cat on the point, you know, size 10. And I'd had this cat off one of the tight line boys, you know, season before, and it was like a revelation, this cat, you know. Cutthroat cat? A cutthroat cat, yeah. It had come out round about then. See, they'd had it secretly stashed away, I expect, didn't they, you know, and I managed to get hold of one, and, oh, fair play, it was a, it was a good... What's the difference to the Well, just, you know, they had the chartreuse body, you know, then they had the red throat on it. You know, a, a wrap of red around the front, you know. And that seemed to trigger the trout, you know, the, the normal cat whisker, uh, you know, uh, booby. So I had one of them on the point, a size 12 black doll back, next one up. And I think I had a cruncher on a, or another doll in the cruncher. But anyway, I cast out. And it was a, you know, warmish day. Sun, not good for browns, really, you know. And I'd chuck about 20 yards out, really. And I'd give it a line of pull, but you know, to pop the booby a bit. And then started to get in, just going to get into the figure of eight mode, you know, for nymphing. And I looked out and I could see someone just going over the line. I thought, oh, shite, bloody pike. So any, I just carried on in figure of eight a little bit. And I could see my line now gradually stiffening up. And I'm looking down, it's clear. I thought, yeah. And then, whoosh, God, he was in. Turned to Dave, I said, oh, I think I, that's, that bloody pike, he said, that ain't no pike, but. <laughs> well, anyway. 20 minutes, 25 minutes, he was just boring down. Fairly for Dave, he stopped fishing, put his um, tackle on the side, got the drogue in, which is important, I suppose. You know, he was out in open water, yeah, but great. the drogue was out. So, he, you know, fairly for him, he got all that in, and then he just dogged me around the boat then for 25 minutes, easy. And then when, when we seen it, God, his heart was pumping and racing and... Then it'll go down again, and you're thinking, oh, the leader's going to go. You, all these like things are going through your mind, and you might lose the fish and all. You know, it's a fish of a lifetime, fish of a lifetime, you know. 
all, the, all the point. He took the he took the size twelve doll back. Next one up from the oh. from the cat block. So I could see the cat, you know, just out, and I just knew he'd taken the doll back. Anyway, oh, eventually slipped the net under it. Just couldn't believe the size of it, you know. Fifty three, Steve Pope on Blagden. Well, the story there is that in 1906, the, there was a, an acclimatisation um, committee in New Zealand, Otago Acclimatisation Committee, and they wanted to bring species in from overseas. And they wanted the best brown trout go into their, their rivers. And they contacted, I believe, the editor of the Fishing Gazette at the time, R.B. Marston, who then got in contact with Don Carr, the head ranger here, and this was 1906. So they agreed to send some Blagden over, over to New Zealand, uh, a, an initial consignment of 10,000, and alongside some Loch Leven over. I believe they went over as well. But they sent them over in containers called Howitown uh, cases. That came from, I think, Howitown was up in Stirling, and it was a Victorian fish fish farm that specialised in transporting over. And so Donald Carr got hold of some of these Harrytown cases and they actually took the eggs from fish that were over four pounds in weight. None of them were under four pounds, but they stripped eggs from fish over four pounds because of the quality. And these fish were, they weren't, the black and fish original fish were lot leave and strain mixed with river yo. So it was a river yo stream brownie mixed with a lot leaven brownie. And they, like I said, it was 10,000, the initial consignment. They were all packed very, very carefully in sphagnum moss. And they went over to New Zealand. Uh, it took around about a six-week period. They went over on a ship called the SS Maori, and that docked at Dunedin. And the chief engineer was responsible for looking after those those small eggs, and he would have to go in there every day, check the temperature, and add ice as well to make sure that it was kept at a constant so. temperature. But when it, they got to the other side, 85% of them had survived. So they went into, they were then introduced to the rivers out there, but um, going back to the chief engineer, he was given a, a five pounds by the Otago Acclimatization Committee. Uh, for his efforts in actually getting them there over that period of time, because that must have been really difficult to do. 54, my tactics for estuary bass. So if the high tide is 12 o'clock, I want to be fishing, not just two hours before, two and a half hours before. And the reason for this is, what I found, the tide won't actually change. If you get there two and a half hours before, and you're, you're fishing, you're casting out, the current of the river is still taking your line down. So the, the momentum of the tide haven't started yet. This is two and a half hours before. What I have found, at that lull point where your fly line just stops flowing to the sea, it's where the momentum of the tide is starting to come in. And there's a, there's a moment where it just, probably about 10 minutes or so, I'd say, where it's almost like fishing a still water. And at that point, it's not two hours before, it's two and a quarter. And at that point, what I noticed, there are quite a few fishing coming first. And then you see the anglers come in. 
Well, they missed 15 minutes of fishing. Now, I've caught some of my better fish and good fish at this 15-minute point, the first ones that come in. Um, so be prepared, get switched on, and wait, and wait. And as soon as that, as soon as that water stops flowing, that's the time you're going to start catching. 55, Kerry Thomas, fishing in Wales. Looking back on the season, on the videos you look, and I saw one clip which you put on, must have been at the start of the season, and I felt for you when I seen it. Did you hook and lose a humongous salmon? Oh, yeah. Oh, man, I'd forgotten about this. Um, <laughs> this is quite a good story. Um, so, yeah, we got. I, there's a bit of the why that I'm, I'm in the club. Gwent Angling, and you know we've got some good water. Gwent Angling, Gwent Angling Society, yeah, yeah. And, and we got a beat down at Wirestone near Monmouth, and uh, it's got a good run for the salmon. And, and I was down there fishing with um, Anthony Evans, my mate from West Wales, you know, and he was flogging away with with a fly rod, the double hander, nothing, but there was fish showing, and and I picked up my spinning rod and I and, and cast that in and. Hooked into this. Was it a flying sea or something? Flying sea, yeah, single barbless hook. Um, and hooked into this thing that basically stuck on the bottom, you know, and it, it, but I could tell it was a fish, you know, but could, could barely do a thing with it. And it went downstream, like a screaming run of 50, 60 yards, like off the reel, you know. And and again, just praying, you know, the fish would stay on. He came back up for the current. I was shouting to Anthony to get the phone. You know, to film it, because I, I had in back back of my mind, oh, this would be brilliant if we can land this fish, talk about it, you know, for fishing in Wales. But then the fish kind of did this thing where it sort of wallowed, and the head and shoulders of the fish, like, came out of the water. And, and it was we, a fair distance out, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, but Jesus, the, it was like a bloke jumping in and belly flopping. It was like a cow's leg. Yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. It was a springer. Like, you know, and the average size of the fish being caught at that, time the beat down below us had had several like 25 pounds yeah i looked at springers you know and it looked that and you know we we obviously it came off um just that shake of the head you know and, and that yeah. boosh and um yeah when i saw the just, splash it looked yeah. like someone fell out of a plane it did it did didn't it like a you know a couple of breeze blocks being thrown in it was yeah yeah and i just oh, saw wow. you going holding your head yeah. oh no i know <laughs> oh no <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. 56, English International and Snowby Marketing Manager, Simon Kidd. You go into rivers then, did you? I did, yeah. Um, I learned to cast properly, and I didn't look properly, but I learned to fish with a, my dad's old all-cock rod, um, uh, an old reel and uh, a silk line, which I used to cast for hours outside the, in the garden sort of thing, or on the field outside the, the farmhouse. Um, struggling to cast and the harder I tried the worse I got um, but I was I was very keen to you still got it I have yeah yeah I would never keep get something like that yeah, yeah I would never yeah. get rid of that yeah I've still got the line as well yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah I learnt on that and a millwood reel it was called a millwood um, an old reel but um, yeah and there wasn't much still water fishing to be had but there were some rivers I learned on the river team at Fingalbridge small trout lots of trout and quickly learned to catch them i used to go rock hopping i didn't have any waders so i'd rock with hop between the rocks catch oh. the fish and i loved it it was all dry fly um my headmaster at my primary school in Cheriton bishop he was a mad keen fisherman he used to make his own rods and stuff like that as well 
and uh, he gave me a couple of flies and he showed me how to tie them along with my dad and um, uh, Jack Hargreaves, do you remember him? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, out of town. Out I think of town, yeah. I, I met him once. And Did you? With his son, with my dad. And my dad knew him and because uh, he was from Dorset or Hampshire area somewhere and my dad knew him and uh, introduced me to him and I met his son and his son showed me how to tie my first fly. Wow. So I learned how to fly tie from then on. So. Cause and I then I got it, into it You can watch it on YouTube now. You can see. Can you? Yeah. I watched them on YouTube because I remember back then when he was on the TV and uh, it was the first, second half I was always interested in because the first half was something else to do with the country, yeah. maybe shooting or whatever. Yeah. The second half was always fishing and I just couldn't wait to the second <laughs> the half. The second yeah. half. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I watched him the other day now and he's there with his pipe. Yeah. You know, he's a character. Like, isn't he? 57, Justin Connolly. August, I think. So the weather was pretty good, and I uh, took them down. They'd never fished before, done a lot of shooting and things together. And I just said, it's it's really tricky wading here on the hotel, especially certain beats. I said, just be careful with the wading, take a stick. I've got a couple of wading staffs there, take one of those. And uh, so her husband had moved downstream, and she was, oh, look at him, he's casting really well. And she turned around to watch him, went straight over a boulder, bang, straight under. <laughs> So I leant forward, grabbed the front of her waders, pulled her straight up. And she was like trying to catch her breath because the water was cold. I thought, oh, you take her to the bank. She said, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. Anyway, uh, she said, just go and deal with my husband. I'll go and get dried off and um, I'll come back. I said, yeah, okay. So I went down with her husband he, and he turns around. He's like, oh, she's at it again. So I turned around and have a look. Like, and she stood on a bank in a little black bikini. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Okay. <laughs> She said, oh, since I'm wet now, I'm going to have a swim. Boosh, straight in she went and just swam up the, up the pool. These guys were like late 60s. Yeah, did, didn't bother at all. Didn't phase her at all. 58, Emily Lewis. I won it uh, by doing fishing with just with one fly, a one small little black lead head. And the secret was to change them. I fished with that for uh, half an hour, catch two or three, and then change it to white. And then fish with that for a couple of fish, and then change it to orange, and then come back to black. And that's the way I had. I did it on the first day, because at nearly twelve o'clock I didn't have a fish on the first day, and I, I think it was fishing finishing at four o'clock or half past four. But by half past four, I had twenty-one fish, and I'd done it on that process of changing, uh, listening Let to him and listening used to, to the yeah. fly. And I remember coming the. the the second day, Jeremy was about, I think he was, he had about 14 on the first day, and he was a good angler. And I remember him, he knew where I was going to fish again the next day, uh, and he came opposite me on the other side of the arm to fish with me. And I could see him fishing, and I don't think that was good news because I could see him catching fish, and he had the shooting head he had. Yeah. And he used to go miles out with his shooting head. I can see him now fishing. And he was casting towards me. And suddenly I looked up in the air and I could see this shooting head, this line coming through the air towards me. <laughs> and what had happened, it had broken loose from, from, the, the, shoot, from the backing. And the shooting led him. And I was very happy in my mind, <laughs> mind you. He slowed him down a bit because he'd caught quite a number of fish. Well, I hadn't had only one, I think. So I said, well, the best thing for you to do, Lewis, I said, was to move. Uh, don't look at it, Jeremy. Let him tie another shooting head and go somewhere else. 
And that's what I did. I went to somewhere else and I was fortunate enough to catch another nine or ten fish. Is and that it? was enough to, for me to carry the day. Like. 59 and 60. Russ Owen. Rolls of soup and something in the lodge. Yeah, it's quite posh, isn't it? It's yeah, good, yeah. You know, and then yeah. we come off the boat with our packed lunches and stuff. Didn't yeah, that's we? right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we did when we got in, then, into uh, the we just sat down dinner and corner. Then, and then I started eating my food. And I could see the chef across the far side of the room. If it looks good, kill. You're staring at me. <laughs> and I couldn't figure it out. I, yeah, I'd forgotten about it. I think I did the bowl of soup and you, you said, I'm okay, I've got some sandwiches. But they, they didn't like that much, did they? Strange, I don't know really why that is. Yeah, yeah. but I think that you had, you had a bowl of soup after as well, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I felt guilty then. Yeah. yeah. I laughed then because when we went back and he said... Uh, Phil was... Uh, Phil was, Wood was, was there after. The fishing and he, said he? You, and, uh, he actually came up to me and he said that... Um, the chef wasn't too happy. What made me laugh then? He said, you're lucky you didn't have a kebab. <laughs> yeah. After practice, we sort of established that there was a lot of fish in that damn basin area, but it was very windy. Now, the people have been catching and pulling on previous previous days, and the, you know, practice days, but on come match day, it, it really did blow up and took, you know, to an extent where the borderline, whether we should have even been on the water, the safety boat was sat on the down wall, making sure everyone was, was okay all day. But we found that floaters were the best because uh, we had a couple of fabs and a couple of nymphs. But the, the floater, we thought, was the best because the surface tension tends to move faster than the boat in a big swell because you've got the drogue out, whereas the, the surface water is moving fast. Yeah. And a floating line sits in the surface tension, so it was staying tight. So you could fish almost static or very slow, nice. and your floater stays tight the whole time. Yeah. Your flies might sink a little bit, but you're not constantly cat trying to catch your flies up where you would be. Because the sink slowly down so much. Yeah, with a with a with a tip line or a sinking line, you're going to have to be retrieving your flies quite fast just to stay in contact. Where a floater, you just let the the surface tension do the work. So you almost got a, a tight line. I know your flies are sinking a little bit, so you get a little bit of a hindi. Will there be fish outside the cages? No, you'll see them. I'd see a smile on your face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is, yeah. Um, we've got pets by the jetty, but these are a different calibre down here. Yeah, there's, there's, there's fish that hang about under the under the nets. <laughs> but uh, this is where they live. So these fish now are actually out yeah, these are in these, the lake. Yeah, these oh, fish li live outside the nets, yeah. There's nothing holding them here. Look at that, look at that. You must have it going in. Nice, nice brownie. That's oh, a double, shit. that's a double, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Massive, isn't it? I think that's in the lake. Massive. That's nothing, nothing to watch in here. 62, Colin Fallen. Fish for an hour and a half. So. Not a pull, uh, nothing. The salmon were jumping over his fly line and uh, the language out of him now, you, you, you wouldn't hear it out of a docker, uh, what was coming out of his mouth. Yeah. And after an hour and a half, I says to him, I says, uh, I says, Deccan, I says, uh, they're not going to, he, he kept saying to me, what fly will I pick next? And, you know, I just tell him, oh, you put this on now, put that on now. And after an hour and a half, you know, he, he handed me the fly box and he says, what will I put on there? And I says, they're not going to take Anton in that box, I said to him. And he, he looked at me, he looked at me his, his jaw dropped, and he says, uh, 
I fucking bought this box of flies off you, he says to me, you know. <laughs> so I says, I know, I says, but you're going to have to, you're going to have to step outside the box here now. So. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to listen to more, please consider becoming a Patreon. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram. Or visit my website, thecastingwithkellyjones.com.